You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. John chapter 4, we're going to focus our attention in verses 35 through 38 this morning. But I would like to read a little more than that just to give you some, some context. If you would, stand with me and let's honor the reading of Scripture together. Starting in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband to come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us, all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I had ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning and we read, a, we read a passage that speaks of harvest. And we sit in the, in the middle of, of fields that are, that are growing and we, and we think we desperately need rain. Lord, we, we pray that you would provide for the crops that are in our field. We pray that you would, that you would send rain. 
Lord, we pray that you would that you would work in that. Lord, I pray that you would bring blessings in order that we may turn around and, and bless other people. Lord, we ask that you would do these things. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come and gather to, to worship. Lord, and we pray that as we worship together this morning, Lord, I pray that our eyes would be open to the truth of the truth that you have revealed to us in your word. Lord, we pray that, that as we talk about the, the harvest of, of God, this spiritual harvest, that our eyes would be lifted up and we would see more clearly the world around us, that you would motivate us to mission. Lord, we pray that you would be with our church Lord, we think of the, the Hope House and all of the things that need to, to, to happen there. And we pray that you would be with Gail and, and that board and, and those people that are making those decisions. We pray that you would provide. We pray that you would give wisdom, that you would lead. Lord, we thank you so much for the way in which you've blessed us. And we pray that you would just continue to put your hand on our church, that you would guide us and, and direct us, that we might be people who proclaim the the love and the, the mercy of, of God to the world around us, starting in, in our own community and then to the ends of the earth. Lord, we thank you so much for how you've, you've blessed us, Lord. And I, and I thank you for those who, who continue to give week in and week out. Lord, and we pray that you would just bless immensely what is given this morning. Lord, we pray that you would just have your hand on all of that. Lord, we pray that above all things, that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified and exalted. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. I, I know that I'm in a little bit different perspective than a, a, a number of you. I, I'm not a, a farmer. I never have been, and I probably never will be. But... I do live in the middle of them. I live in the, the middle of corn and, and bean fields, it seems. I remember distinctly the first time I came to Bethel Church, there was a, a voice in my head that kept saying, I think you're going the wrong way. There are too many fields. You're going to get lost. And I said, well, everything is great big squares. How can I get lost? I was talking to myself, but I kept following the directions and bam, there was this big church pretty much in the middle of a cornfield. Now, as I've lived here for a number of years, I've gained some different perspective. My favorite time of year is growing season. I love watching the crops grow. And although harvest is exciting and extremely fun to watch, I know it's extremely important. We constantly are, are thinking about that. To me, from my perspective, it's a little bit depressing in that after all of that machinery leaves the fields, they will just be bare. 
and then comes the winter. But we know spring comes again, and then all of a sudden we start seeing work happening, the planters are out, and before you know it, we see the crops shoot up out of the ground all over again. For me, the fields, when the fields are bare, it isn't an enjoyment to look at. And looking at it makes me long for fields that are full of crop, that are growing. But after harvest time and, and all of the machinery is gone, I catch myself thinking, man, it's going to be months until we see something growing in these fields again. I wouldn't have thought this way unless I lived here. I wouldn't have thought much about growing season and harvest. I might have understood this cycle, but not given much thought about it. But living in the midst of it has given me a, a different perspective. And it's because I live in the midst of it, I think that this question that Jesus asked in verse 35 hits me a little harder than it used to. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Physically speaking, right, there is a time to harvest just as there is a time to plant. And one knows the, the time of year that will be when harvest will come. People plan their, their lives around it. For instance, I, I would assume that if one of you farmers started to, to get out and get your combine all ready in, in late July, and then other farmers, they might be wondering what you're doing. But then when the other farmers see you go out into your cornfield and start uh, combining it, they would think that you had totally lost it. I, I don't know much, but I, I think I would know something is wrong when you combine when the fields are ready. When the fields are ready, I don't know exactly what that looks that is, but I, I kind of got an idea. But when it's ready, then you go, not before. Going before would be foolish. What Jesus is saying here is very similar. He is saying that when the fields are ready for harvest, then you go and harvest it. And of course, Jesus is taking something that people know, physical crops. You can see when crops are ready. You know about when that will happen. And he's saying, look, right now, spiritually speaking, look at the people around you. The harvest is ready. But just look how Jesus says this. He says, look, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Obviously, this is a teaching opportunity that Jesus is taking with his followers. But the way Jesus said this, look, then lift up your eyes and then see. Over and over, Jesus is pointing out that they missed something. That there was something that they didn't see. It was a, a missed opportunity. There was something that they failed to look up and see. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus saw, what exactly he was pointing at. It was something about the disciples' interaction with the, the woman, maybe when they, they met her on the road or when they had returned 
We, we don't know exactly, but we do know that Jesus is taking a, a moment to teach the disciples something about missions and something about evangelism because of an opportunity that they missed. Perhaps it wasn't an opportunity with the woman here. I kind of think that's not what he's referring to. It, it might have been, but it also might have been that the disciples' attitude and general attitude about going into, the, into Samaria. They had just went into town. They were, they were going to town to buy food. And Jesus, who knows the heart, knew what each one was thinking as they went forth and they were doing and going about their business. He knew that pointing others to Jesus in the city wasn't on their mind. Food was on their mind. Physical food. It wasn't spiritual food that was on their mind when it should have been. Like the woman that went to town and, and recognized the, the state of the people at the city and, they brought, and brought them back to Jesus. The disciples too had went into the city and interacted with people, but they only brought back food. Just think about missed opportunities for a moment. During the Civil War in July of 1863, the, the armies of the North and the South crossed forces at Gettysburg. In the, the first three days the battle, in the battle, there was no clear victor. But then the tide started to turn against General Lee and the Confederate forces. The northern troops under General Meade were winning, and General Lee retreated to the South. And on the evening of July 4th, it was raining cats and dogs, and General Lee reached the Potomac River, and he found that the river was too high. He could not cross it. He was trapped there, the, the Union Army on one side and the river on the other. It was a, a great opportunity for General Meade. He, he could have attacked right then and, and there and destroyed Lee's army and, in effect, ended the Civil War. Actually, President Lincoln ordered him to attack but Meade delayed. He held a council, then he delayed again. And in his delay, the waters of the, the Potomac River went down and Lee escaped because he could then cross it. And the war went on for another couple years. Of course, General Meade never made up for that opportunity. It was General Grant that General Lee surrendered to in 1865. Just take a moment and think about the missed opportunities in your own life, a missed investment opportunity, a missed opportunity with your family, a missed opportunity. I mean, just fill in the blank. And I'm sure that, that many of us have lots and lots of things that we regret. And this is the thing with missed opportunities. It's really only later that we see the significance of the moment that we missed. It's only later that we're able to see how crucial that decision to act or not to act really was, right? You can't go back and do it over. It's a missed opportunity. Notice in our text that Jesus isn't, isn't chiding the disciples, though, for missing the opportunity. He isn't saying, oh, here we go again, disciples. My goodness, look at what you missed. He's asking them to see what's right in front of them. In other words, 
you haven't seen it till now, maybe you should have, but here is a great opportunity that's right in front of you. Don't continue to not see it. Lift your eyes up. Look. See. See it for what it is. I would suggest when it comes to evangelism and sharing our faith and having important conversations with people, most of us can remember some missed opportunities that we've had and that we just can't get back. I would guess that if we're all honest and if we were all willing to share, I could open up the mic up here and there would be a line of people and we would hear story after story of missed evangelistic opportunities. Now, that would not be a helpful exercise. And that is precisely why Jesus didn't scold the disciples here. He was making the point. He didn't tell them, oh, look at all the missed opportunities. He didn't shame them for not taking advantage of of the opportunity in front of them, but he was teaching them. He tells them, lift your eyes and and see what is around them so that they might not miss this incredible opportunity that was taking place. And that is, the people were ready and eager to hear about Jesus and what he had done for them. To, To say it another way, Jesus is telling the disciples to look forward and not look backward at things they cannot change. Lift your eyes and see what is in front of you. That was the idea. The point of what Jesus says here is abundantly clear, and it will be even clearer to the disciples as you think about the story in not very long when the people of the city start coming to see Jesus because of the woman's testimony as she went to the town. Right? The disciples are a little bit in the dark here of what has been going on, but soon enough, it's going to be very clear to them. They brought back food. She will bring back people. The point Jesus is making here is that the hills of Samaria are spiritually ripe. Go down to verse 39 and we read, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Then in verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's absolutely fascinating when you start thinking about the timing of all of this. Jesus will tell the disciples this, Look, lift up your eyes, look. And at the same time, the woman is in town and she's telling people about Jesus and they are believing. That's verse 39. And then she brings people to Jesus and Jesus starts talking to them. He starts teaching them and they start believing what he says. And this is what the disciples observe. They observe the harvest. Look, the fields are are ripe with harvest. Look, it's it's ready. But not only that, in a few minutes, they're going to get a a huge picture of the bringing in of the harvest. Not by disciples, but by a Samaritan woman. 
So when Jesus says, verse 37, one sows and another's reap, I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Who's he referring to? Who labored? Samaritans. They were not thinking about Samaritans as a mission field. They should have. Jesus wants them to start thinking about the situation this way. Jesus was pointing out that there were great opportunities to spread the gospel all around us. And he was encouraging them because the, the fields were ready for this spiritual harvest. And they ought to take this opportunity to be evangelists. The fact that we do not want to miss opportunities to share the, the gospel, the truth of the Lord Jesus with others, the, the message of forgiveness and grace, it's certainly a, a motivation for, for missions, but it doesn't stand alone, though. In fact, there are several motivations for evangelism that we should consider before we get to that. The fact is, the first great motivation for evangelism is that Jesus' followers are not free to set their own priorities. I don't know if you've, you've ever thought about this or ever thought about it this way, but for Jesus' disciples, Jesus' followers, you and I, what Jesus asks us to do is not optional. The Duke of Wellington once said that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our commander-in-chief, has issued our marching orders. So the question at this point is, what exactly are the marching orders that we have? Well, it's the Great Commission. It's going to all the world, preaching the gospel to every person, and then baptizing those that believe in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a command that's given several times. In each of the Gospels, and then also the book of Acts, each of, of these marching orders are given a, a different emphasis. In Matthew's Gospel, for instance, here Jesus is commissioning the disciples and, and emphasizing the, the authority. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. In Mark's Gospel, the emphasis on, is on the final judgment Luke presents the, the Great Commission as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In John's account, the Great Commission is in the context of his own commissioning by the Father. In, in John 20, 21, just listen to this. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In the book of Acts, the Great Commission is linked to the definite program of world evangelism. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I mean, it is clear from just a cursory mention of the marching orders of Jesus here that the command to evangelize the world is a command that should touch each and every one of us very personally. Just think of the emphasis in John's Gospel just as the Father is sending me to seek to save that which is lost, so I am sending you. Go tell them how to be found. 
The, the question isn't whether you should go. The question is, where should you go? The answer to that question is wherever he sends you. You don't get to decide these things. It's right here that you are to be an evangelist. You are to go. This might mean in your office. For a great many of us, it's right there in our homes. God has given us families, children, siblings, parents, spouses. It might be at school that you are to be an evangelist. I know that, that many say at this point, because I've heard it and because I've even said it, we say that we know that we're supposed to do these things, but we just don't have the courage. And we make excuses or we tell ourselves that, well, I, I can't go that far, but I'm just going to be a good witness. I won't use profanity. I won't take part in office gossip. You know, that, I'm going to be a good citizen. That's going to be enough. We need to recognize something at this point. And that is that God knows that you and I lack courage and he has graciously promised to supply everything we need if we ask him. Some people say, well, I have a family or I'm at this stage of life or that stage of life. And, but you know what? That shouldn't hinder you from your witness in the place that you're at. In fact, it shouldn't deter you from wherever God is calling you to go because again, he will provide what you need. And to say it bluntly, we don't choose our marching orders. He does. We don't get to determine our own priorities in life. That's already done. So that is one motivation for evangelism. Another one is that men and women are lost without Jesus. What we're saying here is that men and women are lost in this life and they will be lost for all of eternity if you and I don't tell them about the gospel. Paul told the Ephesians that before their conversion, they were separated from Christ and excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise. They were without hope and without God in the world. Jeremiah spoke of people as lost sheep. Jesus told stories about lost sheep, lost coins, lost son. In John chapter 3, Jesus said that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne, here we read that all will be called to give an account, and those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be lost. There, there was a time, I think, in which one could speak of being spiritually lost and expect that people might understand. Today, I don't think that's so much the case. Some will say, well, of course we're spiritually lost. And then they'll mean something totally different by it. There are various stages of universalism in the church, and they are opposed to the biblical teaching concerning lostness. And it's absolutely important that we get this right. There is one extreme of universalism that, that says 
that emphasizes the fact that everyone will be redeemed in the end. Certainly this view is very against the biblical doctrine of losses in that the fundamental emphasis of the teaching is that in the end, nobody will be lost. And it calls the question, was anybody ever lost to begin with? There was never any danger for them being eternally lost. Others on the universalism scale downplay the consequences of lostness. They, they might say that the person is spiritually lost, but will emphasize that everyone is God's child and God loves everyone just as they are. The lostness then is only in a person's mind. They just need to recognize that they are accepted by God just the way they are. Then the biblical idea of lostness, or the biblical idea of lostness, on the other hand, says that lostness is actually a state of being. It's an ontological reality that one is in danger of being lost forever because their sin has literally separated them from God. And some will point out, wait a minute, the fact is, they will say, that is unloving. To call people lost that way, to emphasize that, they are at the risk of being eternally lost is not a good method to win friends and influence people. A softer message, they say, is more palatable for people to latch on to. A message that focuses on what God can do for you to make your life better. A message of personal fulfillment. A message that centers on self-empowerment and self-improvement. After all, everybody wants improvement. Everybody wants to feel empowered and encouraged. So that goes over well, and, and churches are full, but full churches of people that do not know that they are lost is a tragedy. It's certainly not being given the motivation of evangelism that we're talking about here, that people are lost. They are in danger of spending eternity in a devil's hell. Because they don't know that they are. But they are being motivated and encouraged with scriptures twisted into self-help drivel that helps no one. So, whether one just abandons the idea of lostness in favor of some form of universalism, they soft it to some degree that the proclamation of the word is not the gospel, but it becomes self-help. We must realize that if these views are right and people are not spiritually lost, or lostness is so redefined to where people must just find themselves, we must recognize that that radically repurposes Christ's marching orders. The divine directive isn't to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as if Jesus Christ is the only divine rescuer, that he is the only solution to humanity's sin problem. The message then becomes that Jesus is an aid for you to come and help yourself. Jesus becomes an aid, a crutch for you to come and find and save yourself. And that's sad. The message of the church should be abundantly clear that people, all people, are lost without Christ. They are lost 
in that sin has separated them from God. There is a, a huge chasm that exists between them and God. These people can look for ultimate fulfillment in all sorts of places, but the one who can truly give it is unreachable. There's no way a lost person can find their way to God. That's why the gospel message is so important. It says that one cannot find God, but God in Christ Jesus has reached down to us, and it is in Him alone that the chasm between God and us can be breached. Because God has perfectly fulfilled the commands of God. He lived perfectly. He loved God and neighbor perfectly and then died bearing the wrath of God for every person that would place their faith and trust in Him. This is how the chasm is bridged. Trusting that Jesus Christ died for you. That he paid for your sins and he did, the, he did what you could not do. If you were lost, the solution, the only solution is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, understand that a great motivation for missions and evangelism in your life is that those around you are in danger of being eternally lost. Another motivation for evangelism and missions is found in the the physical and social needs of much of, of the human population. Now, let me just make this very clear. The physical and social needs of people are not our prime motivation. If they were, it would be a, that would be social gospel. The Bible is clear on the fact that it profits little if people gain the blessings of this world yet lose their souls. Our task as a church that we just pointed out concerns souls. But yet we recognize that there is strong motivation for evangelism here. We see many times how the Lord Jesus looked on those who were sick, those who were poor, those who were needy, and he had compassion on many of them. He healed them of their infirmities. He touched lepers. He sat down with sinners. Those people that were despised by the world at large, he cared for and he loved them. It isn't easy to be that kind of person that does these kind of things, but that does not change the fact that we are called to a life of this kind of involvement. In VBS last week, the last day, the the theme was God's power helps us be good friends. And I was waiting for the kids to all yell, trust Jesus. Nobody did. Um, And we had an illustration in in our lesson about how sometimes there's an inner circle of friends that don't want to let others in. And we compared this to the first church in the book of Acts that didn't believe people had to be good enough to enter their ranks. They welcomed everybody in, lame, poor, whoever, whatever end of the political spectrum they were, it didn't matter. And the church made sure right away that they were meeting the needs of the people around them. They they were cared for. You know, we, we cannot make the outreach to the poor or the sick, the gospel itself. But we certainly recognize that the two things are connected. And that leads to another motivation, and that is that the love of Christ Jesus compels us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 that the love of Christ compels us because we are convinced 
that one died for all and therefore all died. And, all, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I think I'm just going to leave this pretty much here for the sake of time, but let me point out one thing in passing, and that is the word convinced in that text. We are convinced that Christ Jesus died for us, that his love for us in dying for us has totally changed everything. The love of Christ changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way that we live because we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who has loved us and has given us life in himself. It changes the way we relate to those around us, doesn't it? Because we want them to know what we are convinced of because of the love of Christ. Here's a, a final motivation, and that is a motivation for the, the task of evangelism is the opportunities that every day brings our way. Every day brings us opportunity. This is where we started. This is the point that was made in the text that we read. Do we seize every opportunity as Christ did, or are we like the disciples that go to town for lunch and not think about anything else? Who aren't thinking about the fields, who aren't thinking about the harvest? Or to say this a little bit differently, are we walking with our heads down, not looking at those around us who are lost? Are we not even noticing the great need that exists all around us? Are we not thinking that the people that we meet day in and day out are in, in, in danger of being eternally lost? Are we looking down and more self-absorbed than we would like to admit? Are we focused on our own priorities and not giving much thought at all to the commander's words to go into the world and share the good news of Jesus Christ? My friends, if this is the case, then we must remember Jesus' words here in John chapter 4. They must continue to, to ring in our ears and they're simple words that Jesus told the disciples. Simple. Look up. Look up. Start looking at the world around us in the context of Jesus' words. The fact is, there are so many opportunities that are right in front of us to, to initiate relationships, develop relationships, help others get involved in places that you naturally wouldn't get involved. All of this for the purpose of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ because... You have looked up and you realized, you know, it's harvest time. Don't be caught in that stage where you're thinking, man, it's a long time till harvest. It's a long time. Jesus' words here are simple. Look up and see the opportunities that exist right in front of you. People are lost. They're dying. They're, they're going to hell. You don't get to decide your own priorities. Has the love of Christ compelled you or not? Look at the needs of the world all over the place. Does any of this motivate us? 
Because it should. I know that many people will say something like, yes, you're right, pastor. I I get it. You're right. You're right. It it should absolutely motivate us. All this stuff that you said today, it, it should motivate us. But I am just me, not equipped. I I don't know stuff. I'm a simple person, not ready for that. In fact, you might be looking around saying, there are many people in this room that are far more equipped than I am. I'm not ready for that yet. I mean, the excuses can go on and on. I I will say this, though. Think about the text that we just read. When Jesus said this to the disciples, he gave them a task. Go into town, get some food. He taught them a lesson. Told them, you look up. You look at the harvest. You take advantage of the opportunities that are right in front of you. You do it. And these disciples, they were just learners. They were still learning. They weren't all the way equipped. They were getting equipped, like you. They hadn't been with Jesus very long. These were just simple men starting to follow Jesus, a lot like us. And this is what followers of Jesus do. They go, they direct those around us and point them to Jesus because they realize that Jesus is worth following. In fact, it didn't take the woman at the well very long to figure it out, did she? We can't use that excuse. Eh, I'm not equipped. The woman just had a conversation with Jesus, left her water jar there, and went back and said, you got to meet this guy. It's not that hard. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.